Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Keith Spa opens the Scriptures. Well, welcome to the first Sunday of spring. Turn to John chapter 17. Today is the day, sadly, that we finish this series looking at the eight hours before the cross, approximately eight hours that Jesus spent with his disciples. It's been a challenging and at the same time very encouraging study, at least I hope it has been for you, has been for me. As we look through the Gospels, we see very plainly that prayer was a priority with Jesus Christ. All you have to do is read any of the accounts in the Gospels and you find Jesus always praying, rising up early in the morning to pray, sometimes praying all through the night. So it shouldn't surprise us here in these last hours. And as Jesus wraps up this time of the little cram session, as it were, with his disciples, teaching them important things they need to know before he departs, It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus prays. And then we'll find, not today here in this chapter, but as you move on into the next chapter, John doesn't talk about it much, but Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. There we know he prays alone, asking his disciples to stay up and pray for him and pray for themselves, and they keep falling asleep. And then Jesus is arrested, and we will look at all of that uh, Easter Sunday, actually. But uh, today, here in John chapter 17, we finish up this series on eight hours, and it's all about prayer. Many of us are pretty well acquainted with what we usually call the Lord's Prayer. Matter of fact, at least many of you have probably memorized it, and that's a good thing to do. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know the Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer, of course, which Jesus taught his disciples, not for them to recite it as a rote prayer, but as a model to help them understand the types of things that we should pray about, as well as the attitudes and the heart that we should have as we come to prayer. But as we come here to John chapter 17, we encounter what is probably better called the Lord's Prayer. For this isn't a prayer that he teaches us, to teach us how to pray, this is the prayer that Jesus actually prays as Jesus prayed here in these last hours. It's the only time in Scripture where we get to listen in to Jesus praying more than just a few words. It's an extensive prayer, the longest prayer of Jesus, and I think actually the longest, perhaps the longest prayer in the Scriptures uh, that anyone prays. A number of years ago, Janet and I were blessed because of your generosity to be able to go to Israel to take a tour of the Holy Land. And that was absolutely wonderful. One of the things that was on the agenda was a trip to the Dead Sea. And uh, I had looked forward to getting there and to to exploring the place and and going around uh, on the lowest place on the planet where you can can walk. And uh, however... Before we got there, there was the night before there was this huge unseasonable, unseasonal, 
unusual storm that washed out the road that we were supposed to take to the Dead Sea. And so the bus had to take a long detour. And by the time we got there, twilight was just coming. And uh, literally we had just a few minutes before darkness swallowed up the whole scene. And actually with the camera you saw more light than we could see with the naked eye. Uh, that's, it was getting quite dark as we got there. Uh, so I didn't get to see much of what I had hoped. And I, I ra- rather think that's what, it, what it's like here this morning as we come to this text. The wonder and the glory of this prayer supersedes our ability to comprehend it on our best day. But we're here this morning with just a short amount of time and with a very inept and inadequate leader to come to this marvelous text. And so we're only going to scratch the smallest little bit of the surface. But it is my prayer as we dig in now that hopefully we will see just a little bit of the marvel that is here. To that end, let's commit ourselves to prayer as we come to the text. Father, thank you for these moments where we get to open your inspired, inerrant word. And here we read the words of Jesus in these hours before the cross as he prays. There is so much for us here to see. We know we cannot see it all. We know we cannot learn it all. But, Father, will you instruct us this morning? And may we see what you desire for us to see today. May we understand what you desire for us to understand today. And may you use it to change us. May it become real to us and realized in us in the days ahead. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. We find as Jesus begins this prayer that Jesus is praying for himself. He says, Father, glorify your Son. While Jesus prays for himself, this is by no means a selfish prayer. Praying for yourself and praying selfishly are two different things. This prayer is really all about others. You'll notice that the glory of the Son, he says, will bring about two things. He says, first, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. When the Son is glorified, the Father will be glorified. And he goes on to say, since you have given him the authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. When the Son is glorified, eternal life will be given to those who are his own, those who believe in him. So two things that are very unselfish are brought about as Jesus prays for himself. Jesus says, as he begins his prayer, he says, the hour has come. 
We wonder what that hour is. It's been all through the Gospel of John. All through the Gospel of John, early on, it's the, his hour had not come. His hour had not yet come, for his hour had not come. Then we saw in chapter 13, as Jesus gathered with the disciples there in the upper room, as evening came, they were getting ready to celebrate the Passover. John says of Jesus, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come. The hour had come, and what is that hour? We know it is the hour of the cross. Jesus is asking the Father to glorify Him, knowing very well all that glorifying Him would mean. Because the glory of the Son is only going to be accomplished through His suffering and through the cross, the gory death and painful death of a crucifixion and through His resurrection. Isaiah had prophesied, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Jesus knew the scriptures and he knew as John again begins this section back in 13, knowing all that was going to happen. Jesus understood very well that before the Father glorifies the Son, the Father must crush the Son. And yet Jesus prays remarkably, bring it on. We know later in the garden he says, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. It wasn't that he was looking forward to it and loving it, going, this is going to be fun. But he is committed to it. And here Jesus says, make it so. Even as he will later after he says, Father, if you be your will, take this cup from me. He says, yet nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Bring it on. What love that he willingly not only is taking on the cross, that was the simple part, that was the easy part. He's about to bear the wrath of God for our sin. Jesus prays for himself in a very remarkable way that is unselfish. Secondly, we find in verses 9 through 26, we don't have time to go through all of that whole first section. It is so rich. But in verses 9 through 26, Jesus begins to pray for his followers. Look, he says, I am praying for them, verse 9. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Very interestingly, Jesus says at least something that the first time that I read it, I thought, that's rather peculiar. Jesus says, I am not praying for the world. I'm just praying for them, those who are mine, praying for my own. We wonder, why isn't Jesus praying for the world? Does Jesus not care about the world? Obviously, that's not the case at all. Jesus is about to die for the world. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He's about to die for the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he died for the sins of the whole world. It's not that Jesus doesn't care. It's not that Jesus doesn't love the world, have concern for them, 
Jesus simply has here a specific and a special concern for those who are his own. Again, I would think very unselfishly because Jesus knows that in just the next hours, he is leaving and Jesus is about to entrust the message of the gospel and the mission of the gospel to this bunch of 11 losers. <laughs> losers in our way of viewing. Ones who Jesus very much knows how they are going to fail. We just mentioned it in the verses before, in the chapter before where we were last week. He knows they are going to fail But he also knows that they are going to come back and they are going to pick up the mantle even as Jesus has commissioned them. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, they are going to pick up the mission of the gospel. And Jesus prays for them and he prays for us because he is about to hand over the mission. He is going to go finish the work of the gospel. On the cross, He is going to pay for our ransom. He is going to pay the debt of our sin through His shed blood, through His death, and through His resurrection to seal the deal and then to leave the proclamation of that to His followers. So Jesus begins to pray for them. He prays for these 11 disciples. We see that specifically in verse 12. Jesus says, while I was with them, he hasn't been with us physically. He was physically with them. And he says, I kept them. But he also said in verse 10, all mine are yours. And all mine, thankfully, doesn't just include them. All mine includes us. The scripture is very clear. We all belong to Christ. We placed our faith in him, our trust in him. We are his. We are born again as God's children and we are Christ's. And he says to the Father, all mine are yours. I love that word, all. So by extension, this applies to all of us, all future followers of Jesus Christ. But even better, Jesus gets specific. Look down in verse 20. We'll skip ahead. I do not ask for these only, meaning these 11 around him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If you're here this morning as a believer in Christ, you're a believer in Jesus Christ because of the word of these apostles. It is these apostles who who took the good news of the gospel and who began carrying it to the world. It is these apostles who have gotten to us through the work of the Holy Spirit, the written word of God. It is through them that we have heard the good news of salvation and faith through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus here is praying for you. Is that good news? Jesus took time before the cross in the time when if it were me, I'd be all focused on me (laughs) and what I'm about to experience. And Jesus takes the time not only with these 11 disciples, but he takes the time to pause and to pray looking down 2,000 years to Chapel of the Lake, and to you. And Jesus prays for you. What a marvel. He prays for us. And you know, Jesus is still praying. 
One of the other wonders is that this prayer is just a preview of what Jesus' ministry is right now. Romans chapter 8 and verse 34, speaking about Jesus, it says, Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What is Jesus doing right now? The scripture tells us here he is praying for us. The book of Hebrews talks a lot about Jesus as our priest, as the great high priest. Hebrews chapter 7 says this, He, Jesus, lives to make intercession. He always lives. He's living eternally there to make intercession for them. And who is the them? It is us. That is good news. Many of you forgot to pray today. You got up, were busy, maybe didn't take time to pray on your way to church, but Jesus didn't forget to pray today. He's prayed for you. What a wonder. So Jesus is praying for us today, and I would say that this prayer gives us insight into how Jesus prays. And I think that as we look at that this this morning, how Jesus prays, I hope that it will encourage and bless your heart as you take note of how Jesus prays for you. I also hope that it will will help us to understand what Jesus' priorities are for you and Jesus' priorities are for me, what Jesus' concerns are for you and for me. And I trust that it will help equip us for how we might better pray for one another pray more effectively for one another. So I want to zero in here in verses 9 through 23 as Jesus prays for us. And I want to note six requests that Jesus prays to the Father, asks of the Father on your behalf and on my behalf. As I say, there's so much more that we could see in this in this marvelous passage, but Let's notice six requests that Jesus prays for us. Verse 11, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you will have given me, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The first request that I call our attention to, that Jesus prays for his followers, that he prays for us, is this, keep them. Jesus says there in verse 12, I have guarded them, I have watched over them, I have protected them. But now I'm leaving. He says, Father, I'm turning them over to you. I'm placing them in your care. You keep them in your name. That's really good news because the reality is we need to be kept. Isaiah wrote back in Isaiah 53, he said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Every one of us, he says, we have a tendency to go off in our own direction. We're following God and then we're not. Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible, very last verse, 
Verse 176, David says this, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Sound familiar? Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. I find that to be an amazing verse. Lord, I don't forget your commandments, but I go astray like a lost sheep. Lord, seek out your servant. Be the shepherd who goes after the lost sheep and gets and drags you back. Break my legs so I don't wander off again here. Teach me. What a marvelous prayer. Because you see, the reality is we're exactly what we sang. And by the way, Rob, thank you always every week for picking such wonderful songs that tie into our passages of the day. Come thou fount of every blessing. There's that verse that we sang. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Do you have that tendency? Just one day you just start wandering off through the tulips, the daffodils, you know. The flock's going that way because Jesus is going that way. And here we go. Jesus says, Father, keep them. Because there's so many distractions. We are spiritually ADD. And there's these distractions and there we go. Temptations of all kind. I just kind of jotted down a few that came to mind. Temptations of all kinds. So Jesus taught us in that other Lord's Prayer, the one that He taught us as a model, He says, one of the lines, lead us not into temptation. Oh God, protect me from temptation because I tend to fall so easily. Worldliness. Do you not know, James 4, 4 says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Oh, how easily it is for us to get caught up in the thinking of the world and the values and priorities of the world, to be like Demas who abandoned Paul and abandoned the mission because he fell in love with the world. There are deceptive philosophies Paul warns about in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive with empty or hollow and deceptive philosophy. The thinking of this world tends to grab our attention and to distract us from the truth. And there are false teachers. False teachers who come in, as Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, they come in secretly and introduce destructive heresies. There's no shortage of distractions and dangers. We need to be kept from them. So Jesus says, Father, protect, protect them. Guard them. Keep them. Secondly, says verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I wonder what your picture of Jesus is. Do you picture Jesus as stern, Do you picture Jesus as sad and somber because he's holy? Or do you picture Jesus as just joyful, always smiling, always fun? That's how I picture him. Partly, I think, because the people I've known that have been closest to Jesus, the most godly people in my life that I look back on and I look at their lives are people who are just filled with joy. Whenever you see them, they just... They just got a big grin on their face. 
my granddad, such a godly man and such a joyful man. And I picture Jesus that way. No blessing goes by, but he doesn't see it. (laughs) No good thing goes by, but that he doesn't enjoy it. And yet he was a man at the same time who was acquainted with sorrow and grief. But in the midst of sorrow and grief, he was a man of joy. You see, if Jesus wasn't full of joy, then this was a useless request. Father, fulfill my joy in them. No, he was someone full of joy. I think of Moody, one of our missionaries that I'm going to see in a couple of weeks down in the southern Philippines. Not Dwight L. Moody. He died a long time ago. Moody, our dear Filipino brother, I got to know him about 15 years ago for the first time. The man whose life has not been easy. He has been acquainted with sorrow and grief. He has physical suffering. He lives in places of physical suffering. He works himself to exhaustion for the sake of the gospel. And if you meet him, he is a man who's a man of joy. He loves to kid. He loves to smile. He loves to talk about the goodness of God. He loves to quote scripture. He loves to... I just, you, you spend some time with Moody and you just get pumped up. Because he's not Moody at all. <laughs> Never thought of that actually. I'll make sure I share that with him. He's a joy-filled man. Jesus said, John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. Jesus intends for you and I to have a full life. He intends for us to to have a life that is full of joy. But may I say he doesn't promise to transform our lives into our vision, into our imagination of what we think a full life is. Rather, he transforms us to discover and find fullness of life and fullness of joy in the life that he gives to us. I love that Jesus wants us to have joy and not be miserable. Do you like that? I love all the more that he, he doesn't want us... Well, he recognizes that it's going to be stinking hard in a broken and fallen world and a difficult world. It's going to be difficult to find joy. We may struggle deeply to find that joy sometimes. And that's why he prays, Father, fulfill my joy in them. He prays that his joy may be realized in our life. I'm so thankful he prays that prayer. We move on. We must move on quickly. Verse 14, I have given to them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. Jesus says, Father, protect them. A little while earlier, two weeks ago, we were in in chapter 16, the end of chapter 15, and we discovered there that Jesus told them that uh, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when difficulties come into your life. Don't be surprised when you suffer because of me, Jesus said. Don't be surprised when you're persecuted because he said a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
He said it there and He says it here again as He prays for us that we can expect that the world system will hate us. Again, not that every unbeliever will hate you, not that every person in the world will hate you, but the world system is against you and it will hate you because we no longer belong to the world. He's chosen us out of the world, Jesus just said. And so Jesus recognizes as He is praying now for His disciples and for us, Jesus knows that He is leaving and He is leaving us behind now in enemy territory. Since we no longer are part of the world, we are part of the kingdom of Christ. We are in enemy turf and it's not going to be easy. And so Jesus prays with that reality in mind, but He doesn't pray that the troubles would be removed or that we would be removed. That would be contrary to the mission. Because he said there at the beginning in verse 14, he says, I have given them your word. Why has Jesus given us God's word? Well, partly so that we can know how to live, but it's more than that. He's given us the word of God because that is our mission. Second Corinthians 5, talking about all that God has done in us, and I won't do... Well, all to do is just look at this verse. Here we go. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal to us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If we go back and read that whole section in 2 Corinthians 5, we see that's the purpose. That's why we are here, to be missionaries. And so rather than Matter of fact, despite the fact of Jesus knowing that we are going to endure suffering and difficulties, that it will be difficult here on enemy turf, Jesus doesn't ask for our removal from planet earth. He doesn't ask that, that God send in the helicopters and airlift us out. He doesn't ask yet for the rapture to come to pull us out. He has us here and asks for our protection from the evil one. And the protection here, again, is not protection from suffering and ridicule and mocking and beatings and confiscations and imprisonment and death. Because Jesus promised back up in the verses in the chapter before, He promised that those things are coming for many of His followers. What Jesus is praying for us is that the evil one, Satan, will not be able to destroy or hinder us spiritually that He won't be allowed to diminish our devotion or compromise our character or weaken our witness. Protect them from the evil one. Fourthly, Jesus goes on in verse 16. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus reiterates once again, as he has said several times here, that we, his followers, are not of this world. We don't, this isn't our home anymore. And so now Jesus prays, sanctify them. You know, we hear sanctify and we think, the word holy because those words are really the same. And we think holiness and God wants us to you know, put a little dour look on our face and put us in a white robe and have us go around and and that's, that's what he wants for us when he says sanctify us. The word sanctify and the word holy, you 
you know, I hope, that those words mean set apart. Jesus isn't saying make us holier than thou's. He's saying set them apart from the world. Most of you know that I love boating. A good day is when I'm out on the boat, out on the lake. The boat is, I love being on the boat, but if I'm just on the boat and the boat is sitting on the lift, it's not nearly so much fun. Now there are times I do that. When it's noisy up in the, up where all the family is, you know, and I go out and just get on the boat and just lay there and nobody knows I'm there and I take a nap. And the lift kind of goes like this and it feels nice. But the boat is made to be in the water. And the boat in the water is a good thing. The problem is when water gets in the boat. And in 40 years of boating, I've been there a few times. When you're out there and you're, where's this water coming from? (laughs) Why is the boat sitting kind of low in the water? (laughs) It's a problem. And you've got to find out where that water is getting in the boat and plug the hole and get the water out of the boat because otherwise it's disaster. And so Jesus is saying, so it is with the church. The church is designed and intended to be in the water of the world. He has put us here. He, has, it's, he says here, He has sent us into the world on mission. But the, sending us into the world is not so that we can take the world in and become like the world. So that we think like the world, we act like the world, we live like the world. When the, when the world gets in us, it's a problem, but we are supposed to be in the world, not just always in a holy huddle, hiding out from the world. He has sent us into the world, as we saw just a moment ago, with the gospel, the message of Jesus, the message of life to a world that is dying and in darkness. Notice the antidote, the tool to sanctify us. Jesus says, he says that they may be sanctified by what? In truth. Sanctify them in the truth. And where do we find that? He says, your word is truth. How are we sanctified? By learning God's word and putting it into practice. That's what Jesus is praying. Father, sanctify, sanctify my, my people. May they learn your word. May they put it into practice. Sanctify them. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we as one, I and them and you and me, and that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. That was a lot of you and me and I and them and they be one and us and we and, we and Okay, we don't have time to untangle all that, work through, but it makes sense, believe me, and it's marvelous. And here's a simple point, which you got just by the fact that it just keeps coming up. What's his prayer for us here? Make us one. Unite us. There we go. Unite them. Jesus prays that we would be united. That unity that he prays for here was in fact made a reality at Pentecost. Jesus told his disciples when he he ascended, he said, wait here, stay in Jerusalem. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come. 
They gathered there in an upper room, 120 of them there, gathered waiting for the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. The church was born. And from that time on, every believer in Jesus Christ is baptized in the Holy Spirit. The moment you place your faith and trust in Him, He baptizes you into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are all united through our relationship with Jesus Christ. We are related by one Spirit who has placed us in one body. And that is whether we are Jews or Greeks or slaves or free. He has taken the most disparate, the most different people and brought them together into His body. Crossing every division we can think of, of race and language and ethnic group and nationality and and socioeconomic status and education. And he's brought us all together and put us into one body. What a marvel. But we are bound together by one commonality, our relationship to Jesus. That bond changes all of our relationships. And that bond gives us more commonality with a poor fisherman in the southern Philippines and with a lowly shepherd in the steppes of Mongolia and with a subsistence farmer in Kenya, with those who are believers in Jesus Christ there than it does with our next-door neighbor who is an unbeliever who shares the same language we share, who shares the same culture we share, who shares roughly the same economic world that we share and who shares the same educational status that we share. We are closer to our dear brothers around the world in the mo- who are the most different from us in every other aspect as possible, but we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Many of you have been out of the country and you know that to be a fact. We need to meet a brother or sister and in that first instant, you know, we are, we are connected. We really are family. Jesus here prays that we will live it out. Live out that unity. Earlier in the evening, three times, Jesus called for us to be his disciples, as his disciples, to live in love for one another. A new commandment, he says, I give to you, John chapter 13. He says, a new commandment I give that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus in those instructions to us to love each other just as he prays here for us to be united with one another, to live in unity with one another, Jesus points out that our love for one another is essential to the success of the mission sharing the gospel with a lost world. Yes, there is a division between those of us who are followers, true followers of Jesus Christ and those who name the name of Christ but don't really believe Him at all. I get that. But for all who are truly believers in Jesus Christ, we are to be united in one spirit and intent on one purpose. And Jesus is praying for that here. One last prayer request for us. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given to me because you love me before the foundation of the world. 
O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Again, more there than we can get into. But Jesus prays that they, that us, that we may be with him. That they may be with me, he says. I marvel at this. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also. I've usually just skipped right past that little word. And it's sunk in on me in these last few days. Wait, Jesus is saying, Father, I desire, I want, I want them to be with me. And who's the them? You, me. Jesus longs for the day when we'll be with him. It's very easy to think sometimes that Jesus is distant, that he is maybe just apathetic about us unengaged. And here Jesus is praying, Father, I want this. Make it so. I marvel at that. So I want them where I am. Where is Jesus? He's in the glories of heaven. He wants us with him where he is. We have a glorious destiny. And what does he want from that? Notice he says, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory. You might think, well, that sounds kind of weird. Jesus wants to show off. That's the way we think of it in human things. But that's not what it means here at all. You see, to see the glory of Jesus is to see who he really is. To see him as he is. And the height of relationship is getting to know someone for who they really are. The height of intimacy in human terms is as we get to know somebody, not as for what everyone else sees on the outside, but who we are on the inside. And that we accept them and love them as they are and know them as they are. And what Jesus is saying here, I want them to know me in all my glory so they know who I am, that they may know me as I am and I know them as they are. And we are in intimate fellowship, relationship with one another. That's the point here. Well, isn't that a marvel? And I'm not making that up. I'm not reading that into the text because go back to verse 3. We skipped over a lot of the first section because we just didn't have time. But you've got to look at verse 3. Notice what he says. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, heaven, when we think of eternal life, we think of heaven, we think of all the wonderful things that heaven is going to be. And it is going to be far beyond our imaginations could ever fathom. It's going to be wonderful for many reasons. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. A new earth, one, I think this earth is pretty cool and I like it. But this one is so flawed and so broken because of sin, it's going to be recreated and it's going to be, you know, earth 2.0 is going to be, and it's the final version, it's going to be awesome. 
And there's a new heaven, the city of Jerusalem that's talked about, that is coming down from heaven and we have a home there. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you there. We have a home there. And we're going to be on the new earth. We're going to be in the new heaven. That's going to be awesome. We're going to have new bodies. And I get excited about that because this one is, is falling apart. And there's no, going to be no more sorrow and sickness and sadness and pain and suffering and all of that stuff for the old is passed away and the new has come. Heaven is going to be awesome for all of those things. There's going to be inconceivable beauty. There's going to be reunions and eternal pleasures and eternal joys. But Jesus is saying here, when He sums up what is eternal life, He doesn't go to any of those things that we think of. Eternal life is the streets of gold. Eternal life is new bodies. Eternal life is glories. Eternal life is joys. Eternal life is skiing without death. That's one of my things. Yes, finally. Pull out all the stops. No. This is eternal life that they may know you. You see, what we're going to realize, all of the other stuff is fantastic, but the greatest thing of all is we come to know the Father intimately. We come to see Jesus face to face. And Jesus is praying Lord, I know what's in store for them. Make it so. See, it ought to change our perspective on everything, shouldn't it? Jesus is anxious for us to get to heaven because he knows what's coming. And he just wants to sit down with you and with me. I'm flabbergasted by that. I don't even want to spend time with me. I'm amazed. This is a marvel of a prayer. It's so deep and so rich, but it ought to instill in us just how deeply our Lord loves us and how great His plans for us. It should cause us to just embrace the mission that He has given us and make the most of every day that we have here until the day that He calls us home. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this. This is... This is high and lofty stuff. It is above our understanding and above our minds, but we've just gotten a taste of it, and we are grateful. We're grateful that you've given us this little insight. We're grateful that you love us so much. We're grateful that you sent Jesus to be our Savior. And there may be somebody listening today, maybe at home, maybe here, that has never put their faith in Jesus. They don't know that they're going to heaven. They don't have a relationship with Christ. I pray that they have heard it, heard enough here that they say, I want that, that they come to faith, put their faith in Jesus. Father, may this change every one of us for how we live today, how we live tomorrow, how we live the rest of our days until we see Jesus face to face. It's in his name we pray. Amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with Him this week.